The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. Do you ever wonder of all the reasons leaders fail, if there's a single overriding reason that despite their best efforts, their hardest work, that they fail anyway? To answer that question, Mark Sanborn. Mark, how are you? Joel, I'm great. Good to be with you. Hey, thanks for being with us. So that's a pretty tall order to answer a question if there's an overriding reason why uh, leaders fail. Because, you know, I mean, listen, people try. I mean, effort doesn't count really. But, you know, so what's the reason? Is there a reason? There's a lot of reasons, but I think it can be categorized in what I call a lack of clarity and acting in the world that is. I call it intentional leadership. That's about, number one, being crystal clear in what you're trying to accomplish. I was working with some uh, colleagues, and we were doing an event, two-day event for uh, small to mid-sized businesses, some entrepreneurs. And as we were discussing their struggles, it became clear that a lot of them were distracted by uh, shiny objects or stray rabbits or just plain hadn't decided what they wanted to be when they grew up. So, let's, so let's, let's get clear about when you say clarity, are you talking about clarity about where their company's going? Are you talking about clarity about what their job is on a day-to-day basis? At a corporate level, at an organizational level, it's clarity about what it is you're trying to do. What is your primary reason for existence. What is the one, you know, priority never used to be a plural word. Originally, priority was singular, but of course we took that and we've made now multiple priorities. But ultimately, your reason for being, your existence as a business is to do something significant and profitable. And if you keep changing what that is, and you and I've seen that, we've talked about boards of directors we served on where in the 11th hour, just before somebody banged the gavel that the meeting was over, somebody raised the question of what the mission statement should be or what the strategic direction should be. And they whiplash their direction and their velocity. So number one is, you know, what is your primary thing? I hate cliches, but, you know, there was a book called The One Thing, you know, the movie uh, Western with Billy Crystal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Curly, they, uh, he asks, you know, about the one thing. And then Curly never tells him what that one thing is, kind of leaves it open. So even though the one thing is a bit of a cliche, the reality is if you aren't crystal clear on what it is you're trying to do, both at a corporate level and when you get up in the morning, you know, every day I work from what I call a trifecta. I know there's going to be 183 things come up that day for me to do. And I ask myself, if I get three things done in, in rank order, what are the three most important things I want to accomplish before the end of the day? 
A lot of people start their day with no sense of intention. So that's that's half of it, being clear on. So what, are, are you saying, so you have three things that you put on your list every day? Yeah, I call it the trifecta. I like some that. days I get all three done. Some days I might only get one done. On a really bad day, I get none done, but I'm working towards my my top goals, if you will. I don't just go to work and say, well, let's see what we can shake loose today. And no, that's like uh, these three right. things. Are these three things like uh, goals? Are they projects? Are they tasks? I yep. mean, bigger all than all the right down. All of the above. Might be a, a relationship, a project I need to finish, a blog I need to write, a promotional effort I need to uh, undertake. But there, there are three, for lack of a better term, because it's encompassing, I'll call them tasks. Those tasks, of course, should serve that greater goal, the reason that your business exists. So clarity is really about, if you had those three things, that'd be a pretty big step, at least toward, uh, you know, daily clarity. And, exactly. and then you got to have big picture clarity. So why don't people have this? What's missing for them? Well, they've either not thought about it or they've not settled on it. I mean, those really are about the only two reasons. If you don't think about deeply about what it is you're trying to do and why, uh, then it just isn't uh, on your radar and you become reactive rather than proactive. And then the other thing is, is that people just change directions. They have a sense of what it is they want to do, but then a, an opportunity comes up and they chase that opportunity. And by the way, sometimes there are better opportunities that arise. I'm not saying we should be ignorant of opportunities that do arise, but when you change your one thing very frequently, you're going to have a hard time making any serious progress. But Joel, that's only half the problem. The second problem is there are leaders that are very clear on what they're trying to accomplish, but they're not taking consistent action in the world it is. By the world it is, I mean the world as it is today, not the world that you started in five or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago when you started working or when you founded your business. Uh, in my new book, The Intention Imperative, that when I talk about the three changes that leaders need to make, I use an example of two parking deck owners, one that was doing business the way it's always been done, and, and one who was very innovative and who applied all of the techniques and uh, tactics that she could to reinvent the parking deck business. And so, you know, no, no surprise who ended up prevailing. It was the leader that was doing business in the world that is, not the world that was. That's, you know, that's a tough concept for, uh, for a lot of people because they, uh, the hard part is unlearning what you've spent your whole life learning. Yep, you bet. So that's, in a certain way, a little bit younger people have a little advantage because they don't have all this legacy baggage that they bring with them. Well, and that could explain why so many entrepreneurs are young because they, they don't have a predefined notion of what can be or what has to be or what should be. And a lot of us, you know, the, the good thing about experience is it gives us context. But the bad thing about experience is, is that it can limit us, you know, because we just are bound by what we've seen instead of what we could create. Uh, I think that the, uh, the idea of asking yourself, what should I do different first? And then secondarily, what can I do different is key because differentiation drives all successful businesses. Otherwise you become a commodity and you're reduced to competing on price. But when you can differentiate yourself in a way that customers or clients or patients or whomever you serve, they, they really value, that's what gives you a competitive advantage. And, and that requires a certain amount of clarity too. I mean, you have to be crystal clear about what your differentiating factors are and you know, what's unique about your business. Well, you have to be informed. And I, I think that being informed, I, I just met with the uh, CEO of Acuity Insurance, which is 
a, a client that I profile in my book. And one of the things that he believes is that innovation fails because it's done too narrowly. He says, you've got to read outside your area of expertise. You've got to look at businesses different and in different market spaces than yours. You can't just read what everybody else reads and take examples from the same people that you compete against because it becomes a very incestuous business uh, and it really becomes a, a form of uh, uh, playing copycat. You know, it's a funny, it's funny you bring this up. I was just uh, talking to some guys that are doing a real estate conference and it's all real estate people telling each other about this real estate conference. They're all going to teach each other about different real estate things. But, you know, there's no blood coming in from the outside. There's, there's nothing coming in from anywhere else. And so they end up just recycling their own oxygen. And that just well, be a big problem. Even though I have a degree in agriculture uh, economics, I had to take some basic ag classes. I grew up on a farm and, you know, we learned in biology and botany a concept called hybrid vigor, that when you cross two different parents, you know, from uh, with different backgrounds, what you end up with genetically is the best traits of both parents. That's why, you know, over time, you know, people become smarter, kids are taller, and you know, because we're, we're taking <laughs> the best traits of both parents and that hybrid vigor, whether it's, it's a corn plant or it's livestock, is what drives improvement in genetics. Well, I think it also can drive improvement in organizations where you take a different parent idea outside your industry or something that hasn't been done before, and then you crossbreed it with what's already being done in your industry and you get the best of both worlds. Are companies, do they hire that way? I mean, do companies go outside and look for uh, people from outside their industry? I mean, it seems to me like they're looking for people that have that exact certain skill instead of bringing somebody from the outside with a lot of new perspective. Yeah, I mean, research shows that we tend to hire people who look and act just like we do, which is why we kind of replicate uh, what we already have. If you want to be more innovative, then you probably ought to look at how you're hiring, because if you're hiring the same kinds of people who would have the same degrees and think the same ways, the chances of innovation are very low. On the other side of the equation, though, uh, when you talk about culture, which is a very important topic, very few companies hire for culture. They hire for function. So if you've got three candidates for being a CFO, I'm guessing all three have pretty good financial chops. Do you hire who you think is the most qualitatively best at finance or do you find someone who fits into your corporate culture and perpetuates the right kind of culture that is innovative or that is forward thinking, whatever it is that, that you want? And too often we hire for function and we don't give any thought whatsoever to culture. You know, uh, different than your couple of concepts of clarity and, uh, you know, and the consistency that you were talking about before. When you bring somebody in from the outside, somebody with a different perspective, something that looks at the world differently, and they're going to kind of talk back, not necessarily in a, in a negative or a bad way, but they're going to bring up things that are uh, potentially unpleasant for you to have to hear. And so you have to have a, a much stronger uh, constitution or self-worth to be able to tolerate listening to some things that you might not want to hear. And a lot of leaders don't want to hear it. And so that's part of why they perpetuate these cultures. Yeah, well, that was that old phrase from 30, 40 years ago, groupthink, you know, where we only say what's popular among those in our group. And so we perpetuate the common diagnosis or the common idea. I think that it's important to realize that just because somebody's different doesn't mean that they're right. And I think that's a, perhaps an underdeveloped skill of leaders is the ability to be open to new ideas without being misled by them. Not every new idea is a good idea. You know, I always say it's possible to be sincere and still be wrong. 
And I've seen that where companies get so enamored with doing it differently that they don't really ask, is this a good kind of different or is this just a weird kind of different? Yeah. I, I say, you know, if you've got a sales team selling uh, electronics and you tell them all to go buy a boa constrictor and wear it around their necks because it's Jungle Jim's electronics, that's not going to be a, a change or a differentiation that your average customer is going to appreciate. If, however, you offer a warranty or a training program or a service uh, contract that is significantly different and better than your competitors, that likely will be. What you're really saying is that you have to take a step back, digest all your ideas and figure out which ones really are smart in your environment, in the world that is, the way you just said it. I think you need to be clear on what you're doing, but open to how you do it. And there you sometimes go. people are open to what they're doing and then very rigid about how they do it. And that, that doesn't work. So open, open to say it again, open to uh, what you do clear about what you're doing, but open to how you do it. And that's, that's the inside track on, on this whole concept. Cause I think that that, that piece is a really significant piece. And, you know, we always talk on this show about how we profit from this, uh, this whole inside track, which is why we're called profit from the inside. And that really is kind of the name of the game. That little phrase is a pretty powerful one. Well, Joel, if, if your listeners did two things, one very practical, and that is tomorrow morning, the day after they listen to this podcast, they begin the day by saying, what's my trifecta? By the way, in horse racing, of course, a trifecta isn't just when you pick the first three horses that finish, you pick them in the order. So you pick number one, number two, and number three. And the reason for that is, is that if you have a trifecta that isn't prioritized that way, you'll always go for the easiest thing and you often won't get the important or hardest thing done. So that's why I like to rank order. Uh, That would be step one. And then step number two would be to say, you know, when when you boil it all down to irreducible minimums, what is the value proposition of this organization? Whether you're for profit or nonprofit, a a government sector, it doesn't matter. But why do you exist? What is your highest calling that you have chosen? And then I'd start communicating the living daylights out of that so that people aren't caught up in in initiatives and management du jour and fads of the day. You've got to be crystal clear on what it is that you're doing. And then again, you know, this goes back to the innovation part. You've got to be contemporary. I I was going to say this earlier, but Seth Godin, one of his early books, coined a phrase I loved. He called it the stuck winning model. And that is we do things that work. And because they work, we keep doing them. And someday they stop working as well. But because they used to work, we do them more and more until they don't work at all. You know, we get stuck in this winning model that it's hard to know when you've reached a point of diminishing returns and you need to change the model. So, so you know, listen, that happens to every company. It happens to people. It happens everywhere. Is there an exercise that companies can do to examine their models? I'm really big on business models and some of these kinds of things that you're talking about. I'm fully in sync with you. But do you, do you recommend a, a model like every two years we do a retreat and we examine some things? You can't do this every six months. I mean, or, or, or how? what's the right cycle? Well, you can do it departmentally on a pretty regular basis, but maybe organizationally, at least annually. I call it the entropy exercise. You know, entropy says we go from a higher order to lower order. Second law of thermodynamics, you know, we go, that, that, to, to paraphrase, uh, things don't become more complex. They become less complex and wear out. You know, at the end of the uh, at the end of the run, the universe will degrade and go away. You know, in a hundred million trillion years, we'll all be long gone. So that's that's moot. But an entropy problem is when you used to do something 
and you stopped doing it, not because it didn't work, but because you just became lax. And because you stopped doing it gradually, nobody said, hey, wait a minute, how come we don't do that anymore? You just got sloppy. You did it less or less frequently or with less intensity. So the first thing you want to say is, what still works that we're not doing as much of as we used to? And then the second part of that exercise is, you know, what's used to work that doesn't work at all? So there's really two things you want to look at. What are the things that they still work? We just quit doing them as much. We, you know, we've, we've drifted. And then the second part is what are the things that used to work that really aren't working well enough to continue doing? them? Do you think companies can do this exercise by themselves or do they need to bring outsiders in to help facilitate these kinds of discussions? I mean, what, 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 what have you seen? <laughs> well, those of us that are outsiders would love to come in and help, but no, you don't, you don't have to have an outsider. I, I do believe that, you know, if you're a successful entrepreneur or business person, you should pay for a skill set you don't possess. But a lot of what I work with my clients on, I, I try to, you know, use Occam's razor, make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. We don't like simplistic. Simplistic isn't good. But trying to, to again, reduce it down to, to the foundation, I think that uh, most employees know what's not working. And they'll tell you if you listen to them. That's not hard. You just have to be willing to listen. And then secondly, I think we miss what we used to do and, and quit doing because we're not paying attention. We just get preoccupied by a different gauge on our leadership dashboard. Well, first of all, you know, with regard to these employees, I think the employees almost always know what, what's the problem. Uh, but, you know, beside listening to them, you got to ask them and you got to give them a safe environment to, to give you an answer where they're, they're okay about uh, they're not feeling they're going to lose their job. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the CEO even being open to having an outsider come in and give a different opinion, whether it's an employee outsider or a consultant outsider. I mean, well, a, lot of these, yeah. a lot of these people don't have the chops to, uh, to take, that, take that feedback. You do make an important point, and that is, you know, sometimes an outsider brings a level of credibility and objectivity that an insider doesn't have. It's the old profit is without honor syndrome, right? Um, you know, in their own town. I've worked with companies where managers have said to me, you know, we've been saying this for a long time, but when you said it, people paid attention because you were the outsider. So there is value in that. But I I think that to get started uh, with this idea of what I call intentional leadership, clarity coupled with consistent daily action, I think a lot of it can be done by the leader, him or herself. Yeah, I, I think so, too. But my uh, my end result is that uh, most of the time uh, they can't really see what the problem is because, uh, you know, listen, a fish doesn't know they're swimming in water. Right. <laughs> they, they don't notice the water around them. That's just kind of their world. So I think that's kind of how we all become. So, so tell us about this book. So you, you get this new book. When's it coming out? Book comes out October 15th. So uh, in the very close future. It's called The Intention Imperative, and it talks about what you and I have been talking about in detail, but then talks about what I think are the three biggest shifts that a leader needs to make today, meaning, uh, you know, now, to be successful going forward. And uh, those shifts are from organization to culture, from motivation to inspiration, and from experience to emotion. Uh, those uh, are the three big shifts. There are a lot of little shifts, but I think those are among three of the biggest that I've observed and worked with my clients on uh, in the past few years. So well, give us a little insight on some of those. I mean, let's take the first one and just, just break down a little bit. Let's hear, let's hear a couple of your thoughts. 
An organization is a uh, structure for an organization. A culture is the DNA. And in the book, I define culture as everything we think and believe that determines what we do and achieve. And, you know, it's been one of those words that has been kind of squishy in academic circles and sometimes deemed impractical. But the question is, do you want to design your company so that everyone is on the same page, shares the same values and is headed in the same direction? Or do you just want people who are mostly functionaries working on their respective jobs without any kind of an idea of what makes your organization both different and great. So culture is the the DNA, if you will, of your organization. Um, You know, when it comes to motivation, motivation is great. Inspiration is better, especially with younger employees that want to feel like they're doing important work, not just being given a carrot at the end of the stick, you know, not just bribed to perform. Uh, 82% of millennials would rather do work that they feel is important rather than be recognized by their employer for it. And I think that speaks well to millennials. And we, and you hear so many speakers and others taking shots at them. You know, millennials are, are wired a little different, but guess what? Every generation that comes into the workforce is wired a little different. And so you have to look at not just what are the, the negative differences, but for me, what are the positive differences? And that is that millennials want motivation of the power of purpose. Yeah, they want to be paid fairly. Yes, they want the rewards that we all aspire to in the workplace. But they want that couple to a sense of what I'm doing matters. And that's why I say inspiration is motivation to the power of purpose. I like that. Uh, the, the world has really changed. And if companies don't accommodate the people who've grown up in this new world, this new economy, I call it, the, the, I'm, I'm looking at the 2020 economy. It's a different economy than has been in the past. I mean, it's just the world's working different. If, uh, if companies don't accommodate that, they're going to struggle. Well, that's the old problem of doing business in the world that was. And that's why I say that, you know, it's not just enough to, to be clear. You've got to do the right things in the world that is. But by the way, that third shift is from experience to emotion. And uh, I, I'm a big fan of my friends Pine and Gilmore. They wrote The Experience Economy over 25 years ago. But, you know, that's been a concept that so many organizations have glommed onto that I think there's something even higher than the experience that we have wherever we do business. And that is how we feel about it. You know, I've been to a restaurant and gotten good service, but left unhappy because something about the food wasn't to my liking. And the real question of the emotion economy, it it all boils down to to this, is the customer happier? They chose you than your competitor or, or an alternative. Because if you can make them happier, they'll come back, they'll tell others, they'll spend more money, and they'll be more loyal. Most companies do not design for emotion. They design for experience. And experience is a broader uh, paintbrush than designing for emotion is. And in the book, I talk about some 20-plus emotions that you can use in designing what it is and how it is that you deliver uh, services and goods to your customers. Of those three, do you have a favorite one? Well, you know, my, my favorite is probably the uh, emotion economy, but I, I'd have to say that you're going to be hard-pressed to deliver on that without the other two. Uh, they aren't just three kind of independent ideas. They really all fit together. I, the, the way I look at it, culture is the engine, inspiration is the fuel, and uh, the emotion is the output. So they really are part of a process. But I'm just always looking for, you know, I went to Cirque du Soleil with some friends the other night. And I, I love going to Cirque du Soleil because you can always count on a new show having a little different twist or spin or 
audience participation, something that makes you go, wow, I would have never thought of that. And that's really what the goal of leadership should be. And that is to occasionally think of something that other people don't think of, you know, to be able to say, you know, I'm glad I thought of that because it really, it really made our company a better place to work, made our customers happier and and did a greater good. So is this book for CEOs? Is it for managers? And who's who's the reader of this book? Well, it's written for anyone that's a leader, formal or informal. I profile five companies from a university, High Point University, where I'm uh, a uh, leadership expert in residence. That happened after I profiled the company. I don't want it to look like it was some kind of a gratuitous inclusion. I've been a fan of HPU for years and was gratified to recently get that invitation to be the leadership expert in residence. But uh, Acuity Insurance, which has a Ferris wheel in its lobby, one of the funnest insurance companies you may not have ever heard of. The Savannah Bananas baseball team. Who else? Oh, Texas Roadhouse, consistently the top of their uh, evals. And uh, that's, a, that's a restaurant, right? Yes, Texas Roadhouse yeah. Steakhouse, upscale, fine dining, uh, uh, middle market steakhouse. And then the reason I, I saved them for last is, a husband and wife team in Illinois called Envisioning Green. It's a several million dollar a year lawn care landscape business. And I specifically included them because even though they're a small business and they're entrepreneurs, they exemplify everything that I talk about in the book, just like the other four companies do. So do you talk about how to go from being from one to the next? I mean, how that how the company morphs from one kind of culture, from an organizational into a cultural kind of a I mean, I do. I mean how, how does that happen? I mean, are there well, steps? I mean, is there a roadmap? The book, yeah, the book is very prescriptive. It doesn't just, I don't write books and just talk about what. What's easy? Uh, how is hard? And so I give, uh, in the chapter on uh, culture, I explain five cultural levers that you have to create and maintain the culture that you want. Uh, I talk about not only in the book, uh, uh, the chapter on inspiration, how to inspire others, but how as a leader to stay inspired despite the challenges you face. And I get very granular with examples about how to design and deliver for emotions. So the ideas that we talked about here, and this book's about 44,000 uh, words long, it's concise, but it's packed with a lot of usable, actionable ideas. I'm going to have to read it. I mean, these are the kind of ideas. I mean, I think a lot about this kind of stuff, but you know what? I'm, I'm always open to roadmaps. And I'll tell you one thing that really resonates for me is a lot of what we learned uh, years ago in college, a lot of the theories are not holding up like you would have expected an academic theory to hold up. The world has really changed. Is any of the stuff that you're doing, is it research-based? I mean, where, where did the ideas come from? Well, I've worked with oh, some 2,600 clients in my career. And what was interesting is I have done peer research. My last book, The Potential Principle, included some of it. But I kind of worked backwards, and what I found is, is that when I came up with a framework, when I looked at what was working and who was doing it best, when I identified these three changes, and then I went into the research and interview portion for each of these five companies, all five CEOs kept talking about the same things. Now, they use different words, but they all talked about the importance of inspiration, cultural DNA and emotion. And it wasn't like I set them up and said, you know, hey, here's what you've got to tell me about. I just talked about what makes you successful. And it was really, uh, I think, powerful that the assumptions that I worked from were validated in the real world examples that I researched for the book. Okay. And so give us some examples of companies that are 
are maybe doing some of this stuff or, you know, is there a real correlation between profit and having companies that illustrate, you know, what your principles are? Well, High Point University, which is now considered the premier university for uh, life skills, has been one of the fastest growing universities in the United States. From a sleepy backwater little college in High Point University to an enrollment today, incoming enrollment of north of 4,000 students. Astronomical growth. And it's because uh, the president there, Dr. Nito Cubane, came out of a business background and understood what it was both parents and students really wanted. One of my favorite examples is that early on when NATO became president, uh, High Point was in a part of town that to park off campus and get to your dorm was a little bit dicey. It wasn't something that made a lot of students or, or parents comfortable. So they offered valet parking. And of course, the critics instantly said, oh, valet parking. That's a, that's a snooty service that the average college student shouldn't have. But it wasn't about being snooty. It was about being safe. Yeah. What you saw there was a classic example of designing for emotion. You knew your son or daughter was going to have valet service and wouldn't be jumped or or robbed walking home from parking their car to their dorm. And so that's an intentional. and, And that's one of the things I noticed is leaders do things at a deeper level than a lot of us do. They think deeper about what they do and why they do it. And often some of the assumptions we make are wrong. And that's a good example of how uh, valet parking uh, was a real perk. They don't have to do it now because the campus has expanded and now the parking is is different than it was then. It's interesting, though, because it's just it's a great solution to a real problem. I mean, if they had a safety problem, that's a great solution. Exactly. And, And they have a steakhouse where students get to eat free several times a month called 1924 Steakhouse. And it's part of the package. And you say, well. Why? Well, where do most hiring interviews get done? Either at the corporate office or in a restaurant. So they teach students about how to be prepared to eat at a fine dining restaurant. And they teach them about the nuances of etiquette and ordering off a menu and understanding what things are. So again, this isn't a frivolous uh, perk. This is designed to develop the life skills that are going to be very practical when you go to interview for a job after you graduate from High Point University. It's amazing. You know, listen, I've, I've been there. I, I am also uh, deeply impressed by what they've accomplished there. Uh, and that steakhouse was probably one of the best examples it is I walked in. And I thought, man, what a what a school that, that these kids go to. But, you know, the steakhouse isn't really about the kids. The steakhouse is really about it's, it's no different than, than them taking an English class. I mean, they're learning something that's real. I mean, something I mean, they're learning a real vocational life skill. It's, exactly. uh, that's amazing. So you put that into the bucket of emotional, because I look at that and I just think that uh, it's a really smart solution, but I wouldn't have a sense about what kind of bucket to put it in. Well, I think it cuts across. Certainly the example about security is in the uh, the emotion economy. And I think that uh, culturally, I think I put that in the bucket of culture, because if you think about culture, culture isn't just the people who deliver the service, but they're also the consumers that that buy that service. And so when you look at this, Premier life skills, which is is the goal at High Point, that's part of their culture. We want to graduate students who are equipped to get the best jobs that help them fulfill their highest aspirations. So I would put that in the cultural bucket. Well, I'll tell you what I like about this already is that you take something, I look at it one way, but you put it in a different kind of bucket. You language it, you explain it, you think about it in a different way. And that's always valuable because clearly you see the world in a different way. And for people to understand how you see the world, 
uh, could only help them to see the world in a, in a good way too. So uh, I really like it. Hey, listen, so uh, as we wind down here, the book's coming out. Just tell us real quick, where's the book going to be or how are they gonna, people going to get a hold of it? It'll be in all of your major bookstores. You can get it online, Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.online.com. And uh, the landing page is, uh, uh, you can go to MarkSanborn.com forward slash intention imperative. So if you Google the intention imperative, uh, if you go to my website, MarkSanborn.com forward slash intention imperative, there'll be some additional perks and benefits that you get if you order the book, but it won't be hard to find at all. Hey, well, listen, Mark. Uh, so number one, thanks for giving us the inside track on some of this uh, intentional leadership material. Uh, thank you very much for being my friend and, and thanks for being on our show. Well, Joel, thank you. It's always good to share ideas and I appreciate it. Very nice. Thanks for being here. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.